we were trying to make our Thanksgiving meal. And so we we're like, okay, the, you know, we, we need to pare down the menu. But we started making out the list. We're like, well, this is this person's favorite. And this is that person's favorite. And this is their non-negotiable. And so we ended up just with a gigantic meal because everybody's <laughs> favorites were different. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Dr. Grace Pratt. I am an LMFT and the Behavioral Medicine Faculty at Integris Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I am joined by just one of my co-hosts today. Uh, and we're going to be talking, we have a couple of special segments to feature, and we're going to be talking about the voices in our community and just the the breadth of knowledge and connection that comes from integrated care through the organization of CFHA. Um, I am going to let Dr. Neftali Serrano introduce himself. Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you guys again. This is, I think, is our first post-podcast uh, podcast. So the last time you heard my voice, unless you were at the conference, was uh, through that podcast. So I'm glad to be here. I'm the CEO of this uh, nonprofit called the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, where we exist to support the integration of physical and behavioral health across the U.S. health system. And um, this podcast is one of the fun things to do. I'm sad that we weren't able to coordinate with all the holidays and all of that, uh, everybody being here, but we thought we'd try to squeeze this one in uh, before our December podcast. And um, I'm glad to be here with you, Grace. We get some yeah. one-on-one time. I know. It's really nice to have those moments to connect. You know, I think it's funny because we had to move around our Thanksgiving one because we were scheduled to record on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah. Um, and anytime we have to move and align people's schedules, it's, <laughs> it's just pure chaos. Yeah. Um, you know, imagine the 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 busy professional lives of all of us. And then we were talking about, okay, I think we're going to need to move December too. And it's so funny the opposite happened. I think we're going to have everybody except you except in December. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I'm glad that you were able to carve out a few moments for us to connect today. So I do have an icebreaker question as always. My brother and I were laughing. I have one younger brother. He's a dentist in Kansas. And we were together over Thanksgiving. Uh, almost didn't make it because I was sick. I keep muting myself because I'm still coughing my lungs up. But anyway, we were laughing and he was saying that he, we were trying to make our meal and our Thanksgiving meal. It It's not a big crowd. It wasn't a big crowd this year. It was me and my four kids and my brother and sister-in-law and their four kids. And then my dad and his wife. And so we're like, okay, the, you know, we, we need to pare down the menu, but we started making out the list like, well, this is this person's favorite, and this is that person's favorite, and this is their non-negotiable. And so we ended up just with a gigantic meal because everybody's <laughs> favorites were different. So my icebreaker question for you, all of that to say is, what is your number one non-negotiable, gotta have it, or it's not the big Thanksgiving meal dish for you? You know, it's a funny question because um, for those of you who don't know, I am Hispanic, so uh, Grace did a great job of of uh, rolling her R's with my name. Natali Serrano is the way you say it in Spanish. And as such, we uh, uh, sort of, what do you call it, uh, adopted 
the holiday, I guess, mm-hmm. is maybe the way you think about it. And as most uh, immigrant families will do, uh, we just adapted it to kind of what made sense, you know. And it turns out uh, no one in our family really loves turkey, <laughs> so there's no turkey. But it's not like we also, we have some Hispanic type dishes that we include, but we mix that with our favorite sort of Americanized foods. So for example, it's not uncommon for us to have lasagna on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not uncommon for us to have, you know, um, stuffing, uh, things like that. But the one non-negotiable, I wouldn't say it's non-negotiable, but it would be sad. It would be sad if if we didn't have it at our table. It's something called pasteles. And um, that's the word can mean different things for different Hispanic subcultures. So it's the Puerto Rican pasteles. For those of you out there listening who know what that is, it's basically like this. Um, it can be made with yuca, yuca root, or uh, a corn mass or meal. And then it, inside the meal, you stuff like beef and, and some vegetables um, and uh, olives uh, in there. It's just a, sort of a, a homey favorite for us. It takes forever to make. It is a really arduous process to actually make. It's like the whole family, not me, I don't really participate, but my parents uh, get together and, and their siblings or whoever is visiting. And uh, they they just work hard over like 10 hours to make it. Make I it think work. that's the key thing more than anything else. You know, people, we, we bring our own traditions, we bring our own heritage, we bring whatever, but it's the time intensive mm-hmm. uh, food that brings everybody into the kitchen and gives us something to do, mm-hmm. I think, to with our hands as we're visiting and connecting. That sounds delicious. I would love to try those sometime. Yeah, yeah um, they're really good. Yeah, usually, usually you have to find like an old lady, an old yes. Puerto Rican lady who makes them uh-huh. and sells them, you know, usually for like two bucks, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Love it. Uh, my non-negotiable is the gravy. I love the gravy. I love, oh, okay. I love a good gravy. I don't even, I'm like so-so on mashed potatoes even, but I like to... My favorite thing is to have the leftovers and have a roll, stick some turkey in there, put some gravy on it and eat that like at the end of the day, you know, the once we're finally our, our, our lunch time, we usually eat around noontime. So yeah. once that meal's finally digested and we're pulling the leftovers back out, that's my favorite thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, I hope that you had a really nice time with your family this holiday. And I know that once I, uh, Thanksgiving day, I was so sick. I just gave my kids pizza rolls oh. and we laid around, but <laughs> I rallied on Friday and my family was still able to come and we got the weekend. So yeah. it was nice. Well, you know, for today's podcast, we are featuring a couple of our special segments in the series that we're doing called the voices of CFHA, which I think is a nice thing to do on this you know, month that we have a few less of our voices represented and to highlight some others in the community. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, how are you feeling about things? How do you feel about the conference being back together in person? How how are things going? Yeah, you know, so first of all, it was so fun uh, being together, the podcast team being together, you know, it was, it was obviously very different than what, what normally happens on a on a usual Thursday morning when we're recording our podcast, but uh, it was just fun. And I think that's what the, what the entire event reminded me of. It's like, 
You know, it's not that I didn't think our conferences are fun. It's always been a highlight of my professional career to go to our conferences each and every year. But, you know, after not having it for a couple of years, you just forget, I think, how important it is and how important that connectivity is. And, you know, all the feedback and the buzz at the conference was was so positive. I can't tell you how many people came up to me and others and just said, you know, wow, this is a great conference. Like, you know, this is really great. And you know, what I remind people of is, you know, yes, we have great content uh, for sure. But um, what a lot of people, I think when they're saying it's it's great, is really just being around a lot of like-minded people who are very mission-oriented, who really care about key issues, you know, issues like equity, issues like uh, making the health system work, and, um, you know, having passion for you know, certain populations like women's health or pediatrics and uh, working, you know, working in family medicine residencies. Uh, it just, when you, when you're around people that have that same energy, I think this sort of synergy develops and it just feels great to be around those folks. Um, and then culturally speaking, I think one of the other things that I was really happy to see is that we were able to really feel, again, those CFHA values around a very egalitarian approach, you know, um, sense that there's no like huge superstars. It's just a lot of us just pulling in the same direction. Um, and so I think we were able to create and, and express again that that value that teamwork is what's important to us. And um, we don't have a whole lot of hierarchy in that in that approach. So that that feel was awesome. I, I really, really had a great time. Yeah, I think it's the connections for me too, you know, being able to look across and it, it's always funny. There's a little bit of like six degrees of separation, yep. although yep. in the, I feel like it's less of that. It's like two degrees or three yeah. degrees. Um, I was standing in the atrium chatting with someone and someone came up to me and said, oh, uh, Bridget Beachy said I needed to talk to you about something. And I was like, I haven't even seen Bridget yet, but I'm glad <laughs> that she's here and pointing people in my direction. Um, and you know, that opportunity that that's what I miss. Even the best, well done, most well done virtual conferences. I think you miss those conversations that happen in the margins. It's mm -hmm. while you're spilling out of the room and saying, Hey, that sparked this idea for me, or how are you doing dealing with this thing? And those conversations is part of what I love about having been able to do the podcast for all these years now um, is getting to have this, these conversations to spark ideas and to spur us. Like you said, we're pulling in the same direction and there's something about that unity of purpose and unity of perspective. That's so energizing. Yeah. And, and, you know, real things happen out of that, you know, it's like, like tangible things that lead to good things happening in the health system, good things happening for patients um, you know, a couple of specifics that I just, as you were talking, came to my mind is we had a plenary session on, uh, what, you know, sort of broadly can be called care enhancers. And so these are folks who are usually unlicensed folks and they have a bunch of different titles like community health workers or peer support specialists or care managers, you know, care coordinators. Um, but they, they serve an important part of the glue in, in a lot of what we do in teams in healthcare. And they also serve as an opportunity to create this career ladder 
for folks because we we addressed in that plenary the problem of the poor representation that we have in mental health professions across all degree types. And the idea that, you know, if we create more career ladders for folks who are maybe start off as an MA, but have an interest in behavioral health and can move in from an MA to a care enhancer role to, with some support, you know, potentially getting licensed, you know, to uh, provide licensed care as a provider, you know, that, that really, that spurred a conversation for our board and said, well, you know, we've got to start thinking about how do we bring folks like this into CFHA, you know, because that means investment of resources to provide things that care enhancers would want to receive as far as um, products from CFHA and their membership. And and then how do we do a different membership for those folks? Those folks are not paid the same as licensed professionals. So it's an example of how, you know, what I, what I love about it is you get those ideas spurred, but then you have things that happen after that that actually, you know, become action and they're very tangible. Mm -hmm. We have such a breadth of knowledge represented. And I see that on our listserv. I see that in our conference. I see that in the people that are coming forward willing to speak up in our special segments, like the two that we have today. Just such a, a variety of things that people know and expertise that they have. And I always say, the less I know about something that someone is passionate about and an expert in, the more I just want to listen all day long. I love yeah. to learn about what drives someone and mm-hmm. what they feel that passion towards. And sometimes it feels like, oh yeah, that's something I could do. That's something I can incorporate. And sometimes it's just like, this is just that's not for my context. That's not for my role, but it's so just powerful to hear people living their passion and doing these things to affect change in their communities. And I got a, a, a big dose of that at the conference that I appreciated as well. Yeah, that's such a great point, Grace, because uh, I feel the same way. Uh, I, I thought of like Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Why do people love listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? I'm like, I'm like, well, because he's passionate about his subject matter and speaks about it in such a way that like, you have to like, listen, even though you could care less about the speed of light and how it's a limit on the whole idea of time travel, you know, (laughs) but I find myself fascinated listening to those folks. And you're exactly right. There's so many folks who have such wonderful, impactful niches. I think of like you and your colleagues, for example, to me, it is such a service to the discipline of, of family medicine, the work that, that you and your colleagues do in family medicine residencies. It is, it is just, you know, it's, you think about the way you're impacting future care providers, medical providers going out into the field, giving them the experiences, the expertise, the knowledge. Um, that's, a, that's an awesome sort of, uh, you know, niche area within integrated care that is just like, man, you know, that's, that's such, such impact on thousands, millions of patients when you play that out over years. And, you know, you have folks working in, in um, health technology, you know, and creating tools so that, you know, they, they can take the burden off clinicians and care teams from having to administer s- screenings and doing outcomes management. And I, I admire those folks that do these startup companies and, Build these, build these uh, things that help us, you know, track patient care better. And so there's all sorts of examples like that all over the place that really do 
you know, they're the reason why I get up in the morning and feel, feel good about my job. Yeah. I hope that listening to the podcast, um, gives people a little bit of fuel towards that passion because we do all have, we all the podcast co-hosts, but also we all of our listeners and all of our community and integrated care, we have different strengths and passions. And I was, this is something that I was thinking about at the conference, just a little window into some of my thought process is, you know, there's so many amazing people that are doing program development and evaluation or doing these like organizational level consulting and restructuring. And the thing about integrated care to me that is sort of like our, our double-edged sword is that we have a very versatile skill set. And we can do many, many things, but we can't do everything. And if we try to do everything, just because we can, it's where we're going to fall apart. And I, you know, I look at those things and I think, yeah, I can do program development. I can do, you know, evaluation. That's a, a skill set that I have, but it's not my strength and my passion area. But clinical training, that's my strength and my passion area. And so when I think about, okay, even, you know, considering, okay, what might consulting work look for me? Because it, it feels like I'm moving into that stage of my career into this like, late middle or like the middle of the middle kind of, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I've had a, a decade in the field and I'm like, okay, what am I, what, what's my next, you know, I love my role that I'm in full time, um, but I've kind of got it rocking, you know, like it, it is mm -hmm. what it is in some ways. And so what does it look like to reach out in different ways? And if our listeners have been listening for a long time, they know that I've written multiple grants that like sadly have not been funded and other ways that I've tried to dip my toes into these passions areas, but I'm thinking, okay, what is next? What lets me stretch my creative muscles? And we have amazing consultants for program development and evaluation. We have amazing consultants. And I'm not saying we don't have people in what I'm interested in, but I think there's a, a space for clinical training too, and a space to to come alongside and, um, you know, I spend my career training medical, like physicians, how to address behavioral health. But I also think that there's a role for training our behavioral health people to not be afraid of medical stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Because we know we see that with you know, our, sometimes we laugh and say it's our greenest clinicians that make the best integrated care people because they're not set in their ways or too married to the ideas of traditional therapy. But anyway, I, for me, I'm finding like a need to step into this passion area of this intersection of helping the medical medical people not be so afraid of the psychosocial and helping the really psychosocial people not be afraid of the medical and bridging across that in terms of clinical training. So yeah, just a little window into some of my thought process, but I hope that we are spurring on people towards that passion yeah. in all of the things that we do. Well, and it's so timely. I, I promise our audience that you did not cue this uh, at all, but it's so perfect because we are uh, putting together a spring event as as a sort of, a, uh, I don't know what the word is, but it's basically, it's a virtual event and we're orienting it around this notion of career development in integrated care. And some of those questions that you've brought up are questions that other people have brought up to me as well uh, in our membership and, and that I have experienced myself in my own career. Certainly, I'm, I'm a little bit past you, 
Uh, so there's there's lots of questions that come up in your development as you go through this. And just like you want to have a career ladder, you also want to recognize that careers have stages in them. And just to validate what you've just talked about, absolutely, you should be asking yourself, and this goes to all of you out there listening, should be asking yourself at each stage of development, just like you think about like developmental stages in a in an individual, you know, what are the key challenges of this stage, right? And how do I meet those challenges? Because the idea that you're going to stay in the one sphere that you've been in since grad school, uh, that's that doesn't that doesn't actually pan out that way. That's not the way uh, career development works any more than we understand um, inter intrapersonal development uh, progresses for human beings. So I think those are great questions to ask. And, and I, and that for that reason, we're, we're really putting together an event to bring people together around this idea and hopefully percolate some of these thoughts that people have around how they develop their careers, how they build their new niches or new initiatives and things like that. And that is an idea that, that came out of the conference. Like just that, that feel of like, okay, you know, first of all, it's like, hey, there's some people who weren't able to make it, who, who just can't make it because travel is just difficult and, and expensive and all that. So let's put a virtual event together. And when I thought about it, that was the, that was the thing that was really the top of the mind thing. Folks yeah. are building their careers. And if we're going to make this thing like integrated care really take off, we need to have careers that people really like that meet their needs um, and that grow with them, you know, as yeah. they go. We're a field, I, I'm more and more convinced that we are a field made up of passionate, creative, and innovative people, or we yeah. wouldn't be in this space. Uh, and so finding ways to tap into that and to develop that is just so critical because you have to engage with that creativity for it mm -hmm. to grow. Well, I want to highlight, I had so many wonderful people reach out through the conference and after the conference who are interested in being part of the series and I want more. So like any, any interest that you have in being highlighted in this way, I'm speaking to our listeners now, please reach out to me, grace.pratt at integris, I-N-T-E-G-R-I-S, okay.com, uh, or Neftali can forward your email to me, or I'm on the listserv, like just seek me out, find me on LinkedIn, whatever, whatever way you send me a carrier pigeon. Um, cause I want to highlight your voice. I want to know the amazing things that you're doing. We have two of our members today that we're highlighting. So one of them is Verna Little, who I spoke with at length about at risk patients and working with suicide, um, especially in like a collaborative care model context. And then we also have Rosemary Hale, who I talked with about chronic pain and especially behavioral treatments for chronic pain and considering ACT and yoga and other ways that we can um, connect with patients for some of these harder to treat conditions. And I love both of these conversations because they're so different. But they also both just highlight this depth of passion and breadth of knowledge that we've been talking about in this whole conversation so far. And so I want you to join me in listening to uh, Verna and then Rosemary. So hello, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. I wonder if you would start by introducing yourself and your role and uh, your background. Sure, I'm so glad to be here. My name is Verna Little. I'm a psychologist and social worker by trade. 
I am also the co-founder for a behavioral health medical group called Concert Health. And so I've been working at that pretty strong the last couple of years. We've been around for about six years now. Awesome. Could you tell me some more about Concert Health? Sure. So Behavioral Health Medical Group, we partner with primary care practices all the way from small, you know, one or two primary care provider practices all the way up to some of the larger healthcare organizations in the country. And so we bring behavioral health into those primary care practices, mostly using the collaborative care model. So one question that I'm asking everyone that's joining us in these voices of integration is kind of what your personal path to integration has been. So, um, you know, how did you find yourself in this area of work? So when I first started, I've always worked in healthcare, but when I first started, I worked in a hospital for a period of time and then transitioned to primary care to actually federally qualified health center primary care practices in New York City, in the Bronx and in lower Manhattan. And I was the only social worker in multiple sites, I mean, busy primary care practices. And so I really had to think about how do I be effective? How do I help people get better? How do I educate the primary care providers in life who had never worked with the social worker? And so really putting some of those systems in place really started me thinking about integrated care. And then it sort of caught traction in the broader space. And then I think we all just sort of grew together. Yeah. And so you were starting from scratch initially. And then as you have been in the field, there also has been this concurrent growth and expansion and recognition. Yeah. And so I know that for all of us as, you know, lifelong learners and working in this field and in that, you know, close connection with patients and physicians and families, passion areas develop. Um, And so I'm through this series, really trying to get more information from people about, you know, what's their passion area? What's your soapbox? I'm curious if you could tell us what has developed as an area really important to you. So one would be suicide and particularly suicide, safer care prevention in primary care. And it actually came, I had been working in that health center network for years and I was sitting at my desk and unfortunately we um, had a patient die by suicide And I started to think, I feel like more people are dying by suicide than I'm hearing about more attempts. And I started to do some digging and realized we were not even remotely tracking how many people died by suicide. We had no idea how many people had attempted. We had no sense of the population. We had like, and so it led me to start to really think about how could we track those patients as a population? What are we doing about them? How are we caring about patients at risk for suicide differently? How are we identifying them? And once we identify them, what do we do differently? What does everybody on the team do differently? And so I started to ask around and talk to people. And someone asked me to come and show what we were doing to a group that was forming. And I talked about how we were building it into our electronic health record and educating the providers because our providers didn't know that most of the people who die by suicide saw their primary care provider. I mean, now we know that people are disconnected from care resurface in primary care. So we have a tremendous opportunity. You know, our providers didn't know that. And so I went and talked to this group and that group actually wound up to be the zero suicide Um, group that was sort of forming at that point. And then through doing 
the Zero Suicide Academies, I would be in them and they're fabulous and realize how is this changing what happens with the patient at the front end? What is a primary care provider gonna do different? What is a behavioral health provider gonna do different? How is that gonna change the patient experience right at the very front where it matters? And so I developed the Suicide Safer Care curriculum for primary care and now we've done, it's well over 3000 primary care providers and their teams in like 29 states. And it's really exactly what to say and do during the course of a regular primary care visit for somebody who's at risk for suicide, like you would somebody with asthma. So that was a very long-winded, obviously clearly passionate about it, um, but that's a little bit about the trajectory. Yeah, I mean, it started the way I think so much of our most important work does of seeing a need in the clinic and seeing the need in your patients. And it sounds like that's really organically grown to a much broader project. Without a doubt. And I think now, at Concert Health thinking about how do we track our population of patients with suicide risk, stratifying them, doing something different, um, making sure that you know we're training people, um, we're training clinicians, we're training the whole organization. And I think that's a really important piece. People don't get trained on suicide care, you know, in training for behavioral health, for primary care. I mean, we really don't. Um, and organizations track their diabetic patients, their asthmatic patients, but have never really thought about their suicide risk patients as a population. Yeah, I think it's kind of parallel process to a lot of other things where only when it be becomes the crisis, when the crisis reaches its head, are we attending to it. Um, but as you're pointing out, there's all these different op opportunities along the way. And so it sounds like your approach and I'm, I'm going to ask in a second, like, what would you encourage systems to do or people who are, you know, recognizing that there are limitations in their work with their suicidal patients? It sounds like one of the big pieces of that is thinking across the continuum of risk and suicide and not just responding when it's at its ultimate peak. Yeah, I think a couple of things that we really encourage organizations to do one is think about two populations of patients. A lot of times they pay a lot of attention to the person they've just identified, whether it's screening or self-identification. But what happens when that person comes back for a primary care visit? What do we do differently? What do we come the next time they get a behavioral health visit? We know now we wanna treat the suicide risk and not the anxiety and hope the suicide gets better, right? Um, also to track your population, put suicide risk on the problem list. It doesn't cost anything. The codes are there, they're in every single EMR. It gives you a structured data way to know who your population is. You can resolve it so that it's historical and always be there because somebody who was at risk once is always more at risk. And you can come up with language um, to be able to talk to patients about having suicide on their problem list. Listen, you know, you're really important to us here. And I just wanna make sure every time I talk to you, my team talks to you that we make sure you're safe and giving people very specific language. And I think the last piece is training. Talk about suicide. This is a, a place where we talk about suicide. We ask patients about suicide. We ask each other about suicide because people in healthcare are at risk for suicide. You know, we lose providers every single day um, to suicide. And so, you know, at staff meetings, let's talk, let's say the word suicide. Let's ask each other about how 
you know, we care about each other for suicide risk and what that looks like across the organization. So those would be some sort of basic suggestions. Thank you. I think that it's clear that taking an approach where you just said, like, we're going to say the word, we're not going to be afraid of it. We're not going to ignore it until we can't ignore it anymore. But having that more deliberate, intentional approach um, is really crucial here. Agreed. And I think it's important to let people know, you know, suicide is one of the top causes of death for our 10 to 14 year olds. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us want to live in a world where our adolescents are you know, choosing suicide. And so these are really important to sort of talk about organizationally and to take a systemic approach to suicide. Absolutely. So these segments go by so quickly and I know that there's so much more that you have to say. I wonder how someone might be able to connect with you um, or what recommendations of resources or contact that you would be willing to share. Sure, I think going to the zerosuicide.com website is incredibly helpful for some systemic approaches. Um, you can reach me through Concert Health, Verna, V-I-R-N-A at concerthealth.io uh, or through our website. Um, we also worked recently on an article with NIMH um, around adults pathway um, for suicide in primary care settings. Uh, the Association for Clinicians of the Underserved, clinicians.org actually sponsors the Suicide Safer Care trainings and you can reach out to them there. They're free um, for primary care organizations. So those probably are some good um, educate your team around the new 988 number. So those are probably places I would start. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you very much appreciated and I enjoyed getting a chance to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, welcome. I'm so excited to have you to feature you as one of our voices of the integrated care on our podcast. Um, I wonder if you would start by just introducing yourself. Absolutely. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be here speaking with you. I am Rosemary Hale. I am a clinical psychologist by training and I am a behavioral health consultant for Riverview Health in Hamilton County, Indiana, just north of Indianapolis. Awesome. Just up the road from us here where I am in Oklahoma. Um, mm -hmm. I know that we all have a little bit of a different path to getting to integrated care. For, so first of all, I'm just really curious to hear about your background and how did you come to be working where you are? Yeah, I really enjoy hearing everybody's different stories. It's so interesting. But I knew really early on that I wanted to work with the mind and the body um, in high school, I remember telling people that I wanted to be a psychologist and a physical therapist. That was like the only language I had for doing both. And then I discovered health psychology in undergrad, fell in love with it, um, still didn't know about primary care, and then started grad school and told someone that I wanted to be like the hospital psychologist who does absolutely everything and sees everyone. Like, what, what is that? And so um, health psychologists kind of tend to like specialize in like cardiac or rehab, oncology. And so my third year of my doctorate program, I met someone that did primary care and that was like just an instant click. I'm like, this is, this is everything. You get to do everything. And I just love it and never looks back. 
That's awesome. I that's one of my favorite things about integrated care too, in in, in a primary care setting is the variety. Like, yes, yeah. I can talk a little bit about this and a little bit about this, and you know, treat people from all different ranges. Um, so you wanted to be a generalist. You wanted to work with people, all kinds of people. Um, out of that, have any special kind of passion areas or focuses emerged for you? Yeah, so I mean, coming from like my original interest in just like where the mind and the body intertwine, I've really developed a passion area in like somatization, chronic physical symptoms that maybe don't have a clear biophysiologic cause. And we see a lot of that in primary care, like there's a huge need for it. So I've gotten really interested in like the ACEs research and exploring the impacts of trauma on the body. Um, so that's definitely become like my favorite thing to work with. I think I, I agree with you. We see so much of that in primary care. And I was talking to a friend about it the other day and the things that we're seeing with long COVID and like the, those post-viral syndromes. And I'm like, I wonder how many of our kind of undifferentiated symptoms, unexplained stuff are the result of like long viruses that we didn't identify or all kinds of things. And so I think it's really interesting I, I'm always inspired by the fact that there's so much that science doesn't know yet um, and that we're able to sort of lean across that divide and connect and support patients, even if we don't exactly have all of the answers of why things are going the way they are for them. Right. And it's like, you know, we don't have any good place to send these patients since we don't have a great conceptualization of what's going on. Um, and I think for that reason, I've really been drawn towards like ACTS-based interventions where it doesn't really matter why this is happening, but this is happening. So how can we kind of cope with this and learn to, to move in the direction of values-based living, um, which may or may not mean getting rid of the symptoms? Yeah, the, the, the answer itself isn't always the answer and pursuing, you know, I've got to know exactly why this is happening, what I'm experiencing sometimes can take away from what's so important to the patient. So what does this tend to look like for you in practice? How are you bringing this work to the patients that you're seeing day to day and the team that you're working on? Yeah, so I, I think a big initial step is getting like on the same page about what treatment goals are. Um, so a lot of patients, that means providing some education and just kind of processing, like, what, what would it mean if being pain-free wasn't what our goal was? And for a lot of patients, that's a really foreign concept. Um, they're like, what do you mean I'm not supposed to be pain-free? Um, so it's a really interesting and I think rich conversation of, well, what is most important to you? Why do you want to be pain-free? Um, what would you be doing differently if you were pain-free? And instead, how can we go ahead and start doing those things now, rather than waiting for some hypothetical future where the symptom may or may not still be present? So a lot of conversations start there, and then that helps us kind of get a direction of what would help them feel like they were living a life that they felt they could be proud of and that was meaningful to them. Yeah, it's about shifting that conversation and shifting the lens a little bit. And I agree with you whenever I talk about that with patients, it's a lot of times kind of a groundbreaking realization for them. Like, okay, I had this foundational belief that the goal was this, and now you're telling me it's not. So what does that life look like? My, my favorite thing though, is when we shift that focus and then the pain does get better. Um, then I'm just like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> it's not the goal, but it's certainly a nice bonus. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. Are there any go-to resources that you have that you use or that maybe you've created as you were telling me a little bit about earlier that you think might be helpful to people to hear about? Sure. So I definitely pull heavily from the ACT and FACT literature. Can't recommend ACT um, enough. I follow Patty Robinson probably more than I should academically speaking. <laughs> um, and then just recently I've been putting together um, a book of, on my own that really integrates a lot of the ideas from ACT but embedded within the philosophy and practice of yoga. Mm -hmm. And so intervention is organized around the chakra system for chronic pain and psychosomatic conditions. So really relying on where is the symptom presenting in the body and using that as a guide to sort of extrapolate um, maybe what kinds of narratives about the self or values have been lost and guiding uh, intervention from there. I think that's such a beautiful like full circle in a way because we have brought so much of you know, acceptance and mindfulness philosophy into the work that we're doing. And so now taking that work that we've learned that we have established as a field and bringing it back to yoga is a really interesting idea. Absolutely. I mean, I really love it. And like the more research I did, the more I'm like, I mean, these already go together. Um, so it's just kind of providing a different framework for it. And I've had a couple of um, behavior health providers go ahead and kind of like take a look at what what I've done and I think others will be surprised at how familiar and accessible these interventions are because it's it's still behavioral activation it's still relaxation training it's still perspective taking and self-compassion and smart goals and all that stuff we know how to do um, but just using a little bit of a different framework for why we're doing it I think that's awesome where can people find that mm -hmm. so it's gonna be published by Rutledge and hopefully December of 2022 is the current projected publication date. Possible it could end up being spring of 2023. I've I've got it submitted. So we're just kind of waiting to see how it all works out in the, the final stages. Super exciting. What's the name of it? That is a great question because I've changed it like three <laughs> times. And so now I'm trying to remember. Um, it is Chakra Organized Acceptance and Commitment Therapy or COEX. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited that you came on the podcast. I say this over and over, but I think that our CFA team members are doing such incredible work and I love that you would join us here and share so that your ideas about integrated care and what that's looking like for you in, in your neck of the woods. So um, if anybody wanted to follow up with you or ask any further questions, is there any way that you would like for them to reach you? Absolutely. I can be reached um, by email at hale, H-A-L-E dot rosemary43 at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's good to meet you. And you thank you. I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, first of all, so much, uh, Rosemary and Verna, for joining us uh, and sharing those conversations. And I want to say again, if you want to be featured, if you are a voice of integration, a voice of integrated care and have a passion area uh, that you want to be a featured, send me an email, send me a contact and let's get linked up to do that. Um, we yeah, and I'll further say, because I know there's folks out there who are having imposter syndrome or like, oh, they wouldn't want to talk to me kind of a thing. If you just had that thought right now, you need to send the email. 
Absolutely. I promise you, I promise you, we would love to chat with you. Yes. And it's, a, I promise I make it easy. It's an easy oh, conversation just to, to hear yeah. about uh, your passion. So Grace is uh, a pro. Grace is a pro. She will make <laughs> any interview work fabulously. I appreciate that. Well, it's been really good just to take these moments to connect with you today. Yeah, yeah um, it's great. And I appreciate our listeners for being here. And uh, we will close with an ending meditation from Deepu the way we always do. This is a reflection from historian Studs Terkel from his essay called Community in Action. And this is my belief, too, that it's the community in action that accomplishes more than any individual does, no matter how strong he or she may be. Einstein once observed that Westerners have a feeling the individual loses his or her freedom if he or she joins, say, a union or any group. Precisely the opposite's the case. The individual discovers their strength as an individual because they have, along the way, discovered others share their feelings. They are not alone, and thus a community is formed. You might call it the prescient community or the prophetic community. It's always been there. And as part of this community, may we lean into each other to continue to support our growth of this movement to bring equitable health care for all of our brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Verna and Rosemary. Thank you, Nathalie. And thank you to all of our listeners. And we'll talk to you again soon. 